I just want to do God's will. What you're seeking is a blessing from God. You must expect a miracle. You have the power of choice. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to Life Today. I'm Randy Robinson, and welcome to a post-Roe versus Wade America. Uh, and, you know, it's been – I have a twisted sense of humor, I'll admit that, but it's been kind of funny watching some of the responses to this uh, because essentially the end of Roe versus Wade meant that the issue of abortion reverted back to the states where you can vote on it. And it's funny to hear people decrying the death of democracy because now you can vote on it. And so, which means you can restrict it or you can not restrict it. And, and so, to me, it just shifted the battlefield. And now, back of my mind, I'm going, death of democracy. We live in a republic, as a reminder. For those of you who went to public school, maybe you didn't learn that. But I went to public school. Uh, we're going to talk about that issue. In fact, there is a, a new book out just uh well, about six weeks ago, and it's called Tearing Us Apart. Uh, and yeah, I mean, abortion is one of those issues. I, I don't know that I've seen anything as divisive since uh, issues like slavery uh, and um, civil rights, uh, which maybe we'll get into some of the parallels there. But uh, the author of that book is Ryan T. Anderson. He's the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D. See, and so you're invited to be a part of the conversation. Judy, glad you're feeling well today. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Anyone else out there watching live, feel free to chime in on the chat. Uh, but Ryan, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to sit down and talk to our audience about this issue and some maybe some other cultural things. Good to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's dive into this particular book and what you're discussing in this because there's all sorts of talk around abortion and things. Um, what, what do you where are you coming from on this one? Sure. So um, my co-author, um, Alexander DeSanctis, and I, um, we're both coming from a pro-life perspective. I mean, the title of the book, Tearing Us Apart, the subtitle, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Uh, and we think that's the truth of the matter. Uh, the past 50-year um, experiment with abortion under Roe v. Wade and then Planned, per Planned Parenthood v. Casey has really been a disaster. Everything abortion has touched, it has touched for the worse. Uh, nothing that it has touched has it improved. And the reason we wrote this book is, you know, this time last year when the Supreme Court announced that it was going to take up the Mississippi case, uh, the Mississippi case dealing with a 15-week abortion law where the state of Mississippi was asking the court not just to uphold their abortion regulation, but also to strike down Roe and Casey. We thought there were five votes to overturn Roe and Casey. Uh, and we knew that what that meant it wouldn't mean the end of abortion. The Supreme Court's not um, outlawing abortion. The Supreme Court was just uh, returning the question of abortion to the democratic branches of government. You know, the federal government and the 50 states, the legislators, were going to actually have to legislate on this question. And that meant we would need to be in the persuasion business, right? We're going to have to persuade our neighbors, persuade fellow citizens, persuade our elected representatives uh, to vote the right way, to craft the right public policies. And what we wanted to do with the book was to compile all of the best arguments and evidence and stories over the past 50 years of how abortion has really uh, torn the entire country apart. Okay. That, now that's interesting. Now I, I may have not, uh, not mischaracterized, but maybe not exactly gotten it right in my intro, because are you suggesting that the federal government, which is run in both houses by Democrats currently, um, 
they could make a national law, uh, and I've heard them talking about it, is that is that something they could do so that the states wouldn't have control again? Well, so it's going to be both. Uh, both the federal government and the states have jurisdiction over this question hmm. um, because, I mean, it really gets to the heart of the 14th Amendment, right? So the 14th Amendment says that no state shall deny any person equal protection of the laws or the um, uh, due process of law, right? That, that was enacted in the aftermath of the Civil War uh, out of concern that the newly freed slaves who are people wouldn't be either guaranteed equal protection of law or due process of law in some of the formerly slave states. So it was actually giving Congress new lawmaking authority, new power uh, to protect the newly freed uh, slaves, you know, to, to be recognized as full constitutional persons. Section five of the 14th Amendment explicitly grants Congress legislative authority to ensure that no, no none of the states were to deprive any person of equal protection or due process. I think that's what authorizes Congress uh, to make laws here. Uh, as you point out, both of the houses currently are controlled by Democrats. So they're seeking to push uh, pro-abortion legislation. Right. Um, who knows what's going to happen at the midterms? Who knows what's going to happen uh, with the next presidential election? Um, but we could see a pro-life majority. Unfortunately, it's not just a majority that you need. You need to get to 60. Uh, in the Senate, because of the legislative filibuster, it takes 60 votes. So I think most of the immediate uh, pro-life victories are going to happen at the state level. I do think the next time we have a pro-life presidential administration, there will be pro-life victories at the administrative level, that there are a variety of things that the Department of Health and Human Services, the yeah. Department of Justice, and other groups can do to protect life. Um, but we're not there yet. And so long as we're in this Congress and in this presidential administration, most of the pro-life victories are going to take place at the state level. And, and and to achieve those victories, we actually need to persuade people. Yeah. Uh, we, we actually need people to have the courage of their conviction and to understand the truth of the matter. Yeah. Okay, so it just sounds like this is a long-term battle. Uh, and, and I will go ahead and throw out one of the things that uh, end up on one of these, when I have these conversations, ends up in the comments inevitably, which is yeah. abortion was the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, I'm, your, your view is a little differently. What, do you, what yeah. have you found? Sure. I mean, a, a couple of thoughts there. I mean, what a sad commentary on the state of our culture, the state of our laws, the state of our economy, the state of our higher education system, et cetera, et cetera, if that statement is true. If someone actually believes that their abortion is, quote, the best thing that ever happened to them, I've had that. Um, that's a sad, sad commentary. Um, so just, just as a starting point, um, second, no one should actually think that that is true. Uh, if you are being forced, if you actually think the best thing that has happened to you is that you had to make a decision to kill your own child in the womb, that's a sign that all the rest of us have failed you, mm -hmm. right? That, that your neighbors, your family, your friends, your employers, your school, et cetera, et cetera, uh, failed you. If you actually think that's the best thing uh, that has happened to you. Uh, and then third, that's certainly not the best thing that has happened to that unborn child, right? Uh, a, a decision to kill the unborn child is certainly not the best thing that's ever happened to that uh, person. And as we argue in the book, it's it's not actually the best thing that has happened uh, to any mother who might say that. But the fact that people do say that is a sign of how um, uh, how bad our culture has gotten. And it's a sign that the rest of us need to do more to support mothers facing unplanned or difficult pregnancies. 
So how do how do we go about changing the people's minds? Because I, I, you know, depending on who you're talking to, if you're talking to a Christian, obviously you can discuss some theological issues. But you know, le- less and less, fewer and fewer people these days view the Scripture as authority. Uh, right. And and I think science is on our side, but it sure seems like some people don't want to listen. How, how do you go about convincing people? Sure. So uh, what we do in the book is we go chapter by chapter by chapter on seven different areas uh, where abortion has caused harm. And so that first chapter is the harm to the unborn baby. And as you say, science is on our side. Um, and when we look at all of the science of fetal development, all of the science of embryology and then developmental biology, uh, which really shows, I think, be- beyond any reasonable doubt um, uh, that the unborn child is a human being, that life begins at conception. This isn't um, something uh, that we learned through the Bible. This is something that modern science, Mm. modern embryology, modern developmental biology has revealed to us. Before um, the, the, the discovery of the ovum and of the sperm and of how human conception takes place, to a certain extent, we were we were operating in the dark. Now we actually know uh, and anyone who has ever seen that ultrasound image of their own unborn child, of their grandchild, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it's very hard to deny the science. So that's the first section of the first chapter. Then we look at the more sophisticated argument that comes from pro-choice activists, which say, okay, fine, it's a human being, but it's not a human person. Right? These are the people who try to make the argument that to be a human person requires something more. And we go through all of the arguments for personhood where you would deny personhood to a certain class of human being mm-hmm. never in human history have those arguments uh turned out well right yeah. the, the, the 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 powerful trying to deny personhood to the powerless history's always looked back and judged them in a negative light and you can think of various examples from american history and from world history mm-hmm. where we try to dehumanize or depersonalize a group and then finally we look at the politics here where people say oh don't impose your morality or don't imp- pose your theology. And we say, look, laws against fetal homicide are no more and no less the imposition of religion or morality than laws against adult homicide. And so if you think laws against adult homicide are justified, on what basis do you say laws against fetal homicide are not justified, right? It's the same exact principle, which is the equal dignity and worth of every human being, because every human being is a human person, a rational animal. On the theological side, we know that we're made in the image and likeness of God, mm-hmm. um, but you can get at this without having to go all the way to theology. I, I mean, I think going all the way to theology gives you the deepest answer and the yes. most firm foundation, yeah. uh, but science and philosophy, uh, the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and amongst these is the right to life, right? The founders understood this, and that, that's philosophical theology there. That, that's not biblical theology. That's um, uh, philosophical theology. But yeah. um, there's a variety of ways. That's the first chapter, right? We then have six more chapters, <laughs> how abortion harms women, how abortion harms people on the peripheries, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, let me ask you one question, and this is I, I like to get people's input on this. And we're talking about a 10 to 14-day window in this question at the very beginning, just for, if you're hmm. wondering. But do you define conception as— when uh, uh, an egg is fertilized or when the fertilized egg implants in the uterus wall? Gotcha. A fertilization. Um, some um, some medical definitions of pregnancy wants to say that pregnancy starts 
when the embryo implants into the uterine wall, right. but that human being has already come into existence, right? That's what we're, when we're referring to the embryo that implants in the uterine wall, that's a new creature. Um, you and I were once that embryo, right? You and I were never yeah. a sperm. You and I were never an egg. We were once a one-cell zygote. We were once a multi-cell blastocyst. We were once an unimplanted embryo, and then we were an implanted embryo. And, and that trajectory of zygote, blastocyst, embryo, fetus, newborn, toddler, teenager, you know, television show host, book author, it's the trajectory of a single organism. True. It's not a whole bunch of different organisms. And so if you believe in human rights, human rights begin when human beings begin, and human beings begin at conception. Solid argument. Um, okay, so in the book, Tearing Us Apart, one thing you do look at, and you just touched on, is the impact that it has on the woman, because you know this whole the whole counter-argument is framed around women's rights, which hopefully, unless you're a Neanderthal, you support women's rights, you know? But now we've got this, this weird term of like forced pregnancy, like, right. I, 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 like you're being forced to carry the baby to term, which sounds really awful and, and dystopian, uh, and they have uniforms that go with them. But it's like, it completely ignores the fact that you are talking about two people here, which goes to the core issue of, of it denying personhood to a whole group. Again, you've discussed that, but what do you find that abortion does to women? Yeah. So uh, uh, lots of things to say there. So um, in that second chapter, we look at some of the immediate uh, physical harms uh, to women, that abortion um, has certain risks, as all surgical procedures do. Um, also chemical abortion, right? There, there's, there are various, actually chemical abortion is uh, poses greater risks hmm. um, to the mother's body uh, than does uh, surgical abortion. And so we look at, we go study after study of the physical harms. We also look at the psychological harms. Uh, and again, chemical abortion, and the reason I stress this is that more and more abortions are taking place through abortion pills. Uh, chemical abortion also seems to um, uh, uh, create the risk for some severe emotional, psychological um, harm to women, including the regret. But the reason that the chemical abortion has this elevated risk, some uh, therapists hypothesize, is that the woman administers the abortion-causing uh, pill herself, hmm. and then she is frequently left alone when she then passes the fetal remains. Hmm. Uh, and so she sees the remains of the child that she just killed, hmm. right? And so this, this can have... Uh, both immediate and long-term psychological harms. So immediate physical harms, immediate and long-term psychological harms. And then also there are some elevated risks for long-term uh, physical harms uh, in terms of increased uh, risk of breast cancer, in terms of decreased rates of full-term births with subsequent children. Uh, women who have had abortions um, uh, have less likelihood of carrying their subsequent children all the way to term. Mm. So we look at that. We also look at what my colleague at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Erica Bakiaki, has referred to as the, um, the the reality of the asymmetry of reproduction. That human reproduction has there's an asymmetry to it, and then the question as a cultural matter becomes: How do we respond to that? Um, abortion takes the male way of being human, male embodiment, as the norm, and then it says equality is going to be bought on the altar 
of sacrificing unborn children to try to turn the woman's body into something that looks more like the male body, right? So we need to sterilize female bodies, and then we might need to kill unborn children so that women can participate in the market and in uh, sex uh, the way that men can, oh. right? M men can engage in sex and then walk away. Yeah. Well, in this case, that means to walk away, a woman would need to kill her unborn child. What Erica points out is that for all of that first generation of uh, women's rights activists, um, they were in favor of what they called voluntary motherhood. They were against abortion. This is why the Susan B. Anthony list is named for Susan B. Anthony, right? Mm -hmm. One of the pioneering uh, women's rights activists who was entirely pro-life. She saw that abortion would be used by men to make women sexually available without commitment. In other words, to use women for sexual gratification. She saw that abortion was bad for women. The early women's rights advocates were in favor of voluntary motherhood, by which they meant that sex would need to be consented to by both parties. Hmm. Right? That women, in order for sex to be justified, women had to grant their consent. That was where the voluntariness took place. Yeah. Um, but by the time you are a mother, by the time you are contemplating abortion, Right, reproductive autonomy, reproductive choice, et cetera, et cetera. Those decisions have already been made. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and so you know the way you phrased your question, it's not that people are against um, women having voluntary motherhood, or against uh, reproductive freedom, but reproduction has already taken place if you are now contemplating an elective abortion. Yes, that's true, and you know it's interesting. That was coming from a time when women were supposed to just do their duty. You know, and right. so that that was a very much a, a positive step for for women to be able to have control over their own reproductive uh, abilities. You know, uh, interesting. Okay, um, another one of the comments that uh, you'll you'll typically hear has to do with the uh, the the different phases. You know, uh, you get the stupid comment that. Why do you think they call it a fetus? Because it's not a human. Well, it's like that's just Latin for person, right? <laughs> right. How do we how do we get past some of these uh, just sometimes strange and incoherent, but very much lodged into the psyche of a lot of people that 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 is not a real person or a not a viable person or it doesn't have this yet or there's there's always some sort of excuse that. I, I just, I can't get past it with some people. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, look, I, I mean, I, I think some people, they're not arguing in, in good faith, right? So I think yeah. some people make those sorts of arguments um, to justify their already predetermined, preconceived conclusion. Yeah. I think some people have just been poorly formed by the law, right? And so so we also shouldn't discount, when I say, you know, we need to be in the persuasion business, uh, don't think that's at odds with the legislation business. I, I think the law is a teacher. There's a pedagogical function of law. Mm. And so for many people, 50 years of Roe v. Wade has taught them that abortion is no big deal. Abortion is not evil. Abortion is a constitutional right. It's a civil right. It's a matter of equality, of liberty, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so they already know what their conclusion is, which is that abortion's a good thing. Abortion's constitutional right. It's about equality. And then they try to justify it. And they're just making whatever argument you know, they can come up with and they're grasping for straws. And so I, I think one solitary effect of the Dobbs decision, overturning Roe, overturning Casey, is that no longer will young people be formed believing 
that there's a constitutional right to abortion because mm. that no longer exists. As more and more states pass pro-life laws, the citizens of those states will be taught that the unborn child is their equal with a right to life that is now being protected in law. Mm-hmm. And then little by little, we'll, you know, I'm with Lincoln on this. I don't think a house divided can stand. So I don't think we can be half free and half slave. I also don't think we can be half pro-life and half pro-abortion. So I think eventually we come to uh, a national solution. Yeah. And I think the only way that that national solution is just is if the man-made law reflects the natural law, right? This is Martin Luther King Jr.'s point uh, in his letter from the Birmingham jail. Uh, and that means we need man-made law to reflect the natural law and the eternal law, uh, which would reflect the truth that every human being, including the human being in the womb, has intrinsic worth, intrinsic dignity, and therefore has that right to life that we all have a duty to respect and protect and uphold. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to uh, educate yourself and, and form better arguments, so that when the not that so you can go beat people up with your well, your you just learned great arguments, but when the topic does come up, you can be persuasive and informed. Ryan Anderson's book, Tearing Us Apart, available now wherever you get books. You know, you mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, is there a, a racial or class component to abortion in our country? Do you think? Yes, un- unfortunately, um, what we do in the third chapter, which is where we look at you know people in the peripheries, and you're setting me up great with these questions. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, uh, noted eugenicist. Um, a lot of the early push, and Mar- Margaret Sanger wasn't an abortion activist so much as a contraception activist. And what she said, we should have more children from the fit, fewer children from the unfit. Yeah. Right? The entire push for Planned Parenthood was to have, uh, this is Ruth Bader Ginsburg language, where she's now describing Roe as about not having too many babies from populations that we don't want too many of, right? Mm. That's the Ginsburg quote. Uh, And what we now see is that in the United States, in New York City, for example, more black babies are aborted than are born, right? The womb is one of the most dangerous places to be uh, for an African-American in America. Mm. Um, Things aren't much better for girls across the globe, um, there are millions of missing girls uh, on this planet because of uh, sex selective, as they claim. Uh, I'll get back to that in a minute, but the euphemism, sex selective abortion. And then there are millions of people with disabilities who are missing. Uh, you sometimes see uh, the headlines saying that, you know, Iceland eradicates Down syndrome as if they found a cure right. for the genetic disease. Yeah. When in reality, what they've done is they have they, they they have aborted each and every child in the womb who they diagnosed with Down syndrome. Yeah, and, and one of the things we know about these uh, uh, um, uh, genetic tests in the in utero is that many of them are false. They are. So there are actually lots of healthy babies who were also um, uh, 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 killed through abortion. Yeah. Um, yep. Last thing I'll say here, I, I I said that the euphemism is sex selective abortion. What's really happening here is discrimination. We're seeing lethal discrimination in the womb on the basis of race, on the basis of sex, and on the basis of disability status. And what's uh, remarkable, um, you know, the the hypocrisy here probably is at this point no longer remarkable. We've come to uh, take it as commonplace, but the voices that are loudest about condemning racial discrimination, sex discrimination, and disability discrimination, they go silent when it takes place in utero. Yeah, they do. Um, And so we we point out, if you really care about equality, equality starts in the womb, uh, and you look at the 
uh, rates of abortion and you think disparate impact is the way to look at racial discrimination outside of the room. What's going on with disparate impact of abortion laws uh, for black babies in the womb? Yeah. Um, you, you think having millions of baby girls aborted simply because they're they are girls. How do you live with that? Uh, and yet we see silence for many of the progressive groups who normally speak out on these issues. Yeah, no, and that's been going on for a while. And suddenly, you know, National Organization for Women gets real quiet when the idea of select, sex-selective abortion comes up. It's like, mm, okay, it just it's inconsistent. I do have to ask you about this before I let you go, um, and, and this has been great information, by the way. There are, of course, well, we got a, we got a president who claims to be Catholic. A Speaker of the House claims her Catholicism when it's convenient for her, yet they completely go against the Catholic Church, who has held the line, thank God, you know, really strongly in favor of life. But you've also got, uh, you know, evangelical leaders now, uh, Protestant, you know, who are coming out and saying that, that they support women meaning that they support abortion, which to me is not supporting women the way you should. But how do we, how, we it's I, part of me is like, man, we get to get our, our own house straight before we can really have an impact on the world. And sometimes it seems like it's going the other direction. What do, do you have any thoughts when it comes to people who claim to be Christians who are yeah. pro-abortion? Sure. I mean, I, I actually think this is another harm of abortion. Um, it's corrupted our politics and our culture. In this sense, many of those people you mentioned, uh, take Joe Biden, for example, started their political career as being pro-life. Yeah. Ted Kennedy started his political career as being pro-life. The Democrats were the party of the so-called little guy, right? And they were there, I mean, pro-life Democrats, Catholic Democrats, these were a mainstay of that political party. Mm -hmm. And then one by one by one, they all caved in order to get on what they perceived as the quote right side of history, which is really just to say the right side of their the party's activists and the party's donors. Yeah. Um, and donors. I think we will look back on this in horror that they didn't actually have the courage of their convictions. Um, it has actually, I mean, in order to win short-term political gain, many of these people are placing their eternal soul at risk. Um, and so, so you know, the, the immediate reaction should just be one of horror because many of these politicians that you mentioned are octogenarians. And so they're not long for this world. Mm. Um, and they've sold out on, you know, fundamental moral truths in order for short-term political gain, doing so in a way that will have eternal consequences. And so we, we should mourn that. But then more importantly, this is another way in which abortion has harmed everything it's touched. Mm. It's corrupt the churches. Uh, many of these uh, uh, elected officials are not challenged by their own religious leaders, right? Their own religious leaders have gone heterodox mm -hmm. on these issues, or at least have gone silent as the cost of going along to get along. Um, and so what we now need is um, from, from the church is just the universal vocation of bearing witness to the truth, right? It's, it's what Christ came to do to bear witness to the truth. It's what each and every one of us as followers of Christ have a vocation to do, which is simply um, not to bend the knee to lies, and to do whatever we can in a persuasive way to bear witness to the truth. Yeah, and I am not above doing that almost obnoxiously in the sense of never giving in. Obstinately would be the better word. Always with a smile, but always with some knowledge uh, such as you guys have have armed us with. Uh, we, we can't let this go. I, I, want, I want to show people real quick your website. This is eppc.org. Uh, and... Tell people a little bit about what you're doing at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. 
Sure. So um, EPVC is the nation's kind of premier uh, think tank in D.C. working within the Judeo-Christian uh, moral tradition to apply insights from the Judeo-Christian ethical um, tradition to contemporary questions of law, policy, and culture. Uh, it's been around for 46 years. A year ago, I became the new president, so I I'm in my second year in office. Um, and, you know, we have a whole host of pro-life scholars working on life issues. We have scholars working on marriage and the family issues, religious liberty issues, gender identity issues, the Constitution, um, et cetera, et cetera. So we're, we're really looking at how can the theological and philosophical traditions that flow out of um, uh, uh, Christianity renew our country and reform our laws? It's good. And I, I really appreciate people like you in those positions that you're at because it's if we're not there, we create a vacuum, and that vacuum is filled very quickly with people that do not do us good legislatively or, like you talk about, just in, in sort of setting the framework for thought in the country. So thank you to what you guys do. I appreciate what you're doing. Is there anything you want to add before I let you go? No, this has been wonderful. Thanks for having me. Well, and I do want to have you back because today we're talking about tearing us apart, but I'm going to show you another book from Ryan Anderson, and it's called When Harry Became Sally. So we'll have to circle back to this one because um, that that's just too good to let go uh, and it's obviously becoming a bigger issue again thank you ryan t anderson i say the t so people can separate you from all the other ryan andersons out there uh, <laughs> there's some sports stars yeah yeah there's, there's but uh thank you i appreciate the insight appreciate your time with our audience today great thank you appreciate you guys watching hit share hit like hit subscribe hit follow and come back. Uh, we will. We'll, we'll get. I'll see if I can get him back on for uh, the when Harry became Sally. Um, maybe closer to the election. But uh, share this one. We really have to. We need to fight the fight. We need to stand up. We need to never relent. But we need to know what the heck we're talking about. So tearing us apart is a great resource for that. Again, share this if you know someone that'll be interested. And we'll see you again next time here on Life Today Live. Appreciate you being here. America. Be true to what you said on paper.